Well, I did hear that the ladies had a wonderful time yesterday at the um, women's conference. Right, they got good food, but most of all, good teaching and good fellowship. And uh, thank you all who served in that event, and even the men who showed up to serve food. Uh, we're really blessed to be able to, to have that for the ladies. Let's open God's Word this morning. And it is a great joy to open God's Word uh, to the book of Romans. Uh, my favorite thing to do is to study God's Word and bring it to you each week. I love to do it. Thank you for putting up with me for all these years and uh, letting me do just that thing. I remember when I, I felt called to seminary, I thought, Lord, there's no way I can preach. I hate public speaking. But you better watch what you say there's no way you can do. I also said there's no way I can live in L.A. And of course, God took me there for seminary and then brought us back here to start the church and just been so blessed since then. Now we're in one of the greatest books of the Bible, the book of Romans. And we've been looking at Paul's life. We, we took, a first of all, an overview of the book in the first sermon, and then we looked at just Paul in verse 1. And what does Paul say about himself? And now we come to his short explanation of the gospel. Paul gives us here a Christ-centered gospel. And so I want to read the whole section, um, verse 1 all the way down through verse 7. It is one uh, flowing sentence. And even the NASB tries to keep it one sentence in English. But as you'll see, Paul packs a lot in these long sentences of his. He packs a lot of theology in here. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 2 through 4 this morning. But let me read the whole thing in context. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the past decade or so, we've seen sort of a focus, a resurgence, you might call it, on the gospel. A lot of gospel-centered ministries and books have come about. And it's really been proliferated in the publishing market you read books, and we have some in the books that are on gospel-centered living, gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered marriages, gospel-centered churches, gospel-centered faith, gospel-centered weddings, gospel-centered funerals, gospel-centered counseling. And this is often good for the church. We need to get back to the core, to the focus. But we need to also ask, what's at the core of the gospel? Or who's at the center of the gospel? Oftentimes we can use Christian language like gospel and not always stop and think, what's the gospel about? Who is the gospel about? But what's the center of even the gospel? If the gospel is supposed to be the center of our proclamation, what we proclaim, then what's the center of the gospel? And what we're going to see just in this text here and throughout the whole book of Romans is Paul is going to open up the gospel. And he's going to tell us what it is. And he's going to remind us throughout the book of Romans what it is. And he's going to explain it in depth and then apply it to our actual life. How we are to live it out. But from the very last verse, if we work backwards of Romans, to this verse here in chapter 1 verse 2, we see the gospel mentioned over and over. Just go to the end of Romans. Let's look at it. Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ to be the glory forever. What's the gospel about? It's about Jesus Christ. We saw Paul mention it over and over in this first long sentence. We see him mention Jesus Christ in the very last verse of the book. And everything in between 
is about Christ. We need to not just recapture the gospel, but make sure we have the right gospel. The gospel of God. The gospel that God gave and continues to give us in his word here for the church. Yes, let's recover the gospel, but let's remember Christ is at the center of the gospel. Even back in the 1950s, the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, while he was preaching on this passage, he said, you talk to people, they say they are Christians and believe the gospel. You ask them to tell you what they mean by the gospel, what they mean by being a Christian, and they will tell you, and you listen to them, and you notice that they end without even mentioning the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, they talk a lot about God. They, they talk uh, about receiving forgiveness from God. They talk about praying to God. They talk about being guided by God and so on. But they, the whole talk finishes without a mention of the name of the Son. And yet they regard themselves as Christians. They seem to have a kind of Christianity apart from the Son. And he goes on to say, you can have Buddhism without Buddha. You can have Confucianism without Confucius. But you can't have Christianity without Christ. You can't have Christianity without Christ. And since there's really no true gospel, there's no true good news without Christ, we need to, like Paul did, focus ourselves on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the burden that Paul wants to preach throughout this letter to the Romans. That's the burden that he wants to preach in every place he goes. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. And then writing to the Colossians, in Colossians 1.28, he says, we proclaim Him. That's our message. Simply proclaiming Christ. Not, all, not just all the benefits. Yeah, there are benefits if you believe in Christ. But first we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You start with Christ, you finish with Christ, because everything in between is ultimately glorifying Christ. So now Paul's told us at the very first phrase of Romans that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. And he just wants to make clear in verses 2 through 4 what the gospel's about. He's going to open it up, he's going to expand on it a lot more. But he just wants to make clear and a few phrases here, what the gospel is about. And it's the gospel of God because remember, it comes from God. God gives it to us. He gives it to the church. He gives it to his prophets and preachers to proclaim. So what we're going to see here in verses 2 through 4, two facts, two facts about the gospel of God. Two things we need to know, two things we need to remember about the gospel. That even as mature Christians, sometimes we might forget things that the new believer needs to learn, things that the unbeliever needs to hear. Because they've heard this term gospel in Christianity, but they don't always know what it is. What is the gospel? What's it about? So Paul starts off with these two facts. Before he moves on into the rest of this paragraph, he starts off with, number one, the promise of the coming gospel. There's a promise of the coming gospel in Scripture. And he says, this gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand. The Greek verb here for promise means to announce with certainty in advance as to what one will do. This isn't God's plan B. This isn't a plan that God came up with when Israel rejected him. And then he suddenly said, I'll come up with a new plan. I will call it the gospel and I'll send my son. Now, this was promised beforehand. This was promised from the very, really, first book of the Bible. And certainly, there's no change in God's mind. He knows all things. He plans all things. He decrees all things that come into existence. Sometimes Christians think there's two gods, one of the Old Testament, one of the New. They wouldn't say it like that. But they think there's a wrathful God in the Old Testament and a loving God in the New Testament. That's not true. You read the Bible, you found mercy and grace in the Old you find wrath in the new, especially when you get to the book of Revelation. It's the same God, and he's promised the gospel long before Christ comes. Long before the Son of God takes on flesh. This is why the Apostle John will call it in the book of Revelation, the eternal gospel. 
It's the eternal gospel, the everlasting gospel. It's in the mind of God from eternity past. And, and he made it known, Paul says, through his prophets. Through his prophets. How did this promise of the coming gospel, how did that come about? How did people hear about the gospel? What's well, through God's prophets? And they're his prophets. They're not anyone else's prophets. There's a lot of false prophets mentioned in the Old Testament. There's a lot of people who proclaim their own prophecies. There's a lot of preachers today who proclaim their own sermons, their own gospel, their own prophecies even. No, these are God's prophets. His prophets. This already touches on the dual authorship of Scripture. Who is the author of the Bible? Well, you have the human writer. You have the human writer. You have Paul. You have Matthew. You have Isaiah. You have Moses. All the men who wrote Scripture. But the ultimate author, the author from beginning to end, is God. He is the ultimate author. He's the one working through those men to write His holy Scriptures. So they're his prophets. They're proclaiming this message. But what is the message? Well, it's the message of the coming Messiah. It's the message of the coming Savior. We see that throughout the Old Testament. And we could go through all the hundreds and hundreds of passages. We'd be here all day. We don't, we'd be here all week, maybe all month to get through them all. Let's just see what Jesus said to summarize the Old Testament's teaching on him. Go to Luke 24. Luke 24 and verse 25. What does Jesus have to say about himself in the Old Testament? Because that's where these prophets Paul is, is mentioning here. That's where they're found. They're, the New Testament's not been written yet. Paul's letters are going to be some of the first New Testament books to be written. He's talking about the Old Testament. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 24, verse 25. He's visiting with these men as they walk along the road. This is the resurrected Jesus. They don't recognize him. And these men are stressed about what has happened in Jerusalem. They are saddened that Jesus has been crucified and died. They're struggling with it. How could this man claim to be the Messiah and yet he's been killed? That's not the way it's supposed to work in their mind. And here's what he says to them. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He basically says, look, you're foolish. You're fools for not believing in the very Bible that you claim to believe in. And notice how he summarizes the Bible, the Old Testament at the time, as just the prophets. And he says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Was this not already there in the Old Testament? Was it not necessary because God said it would happen and God said it was necessary? And then look at verse 27. Then beginning with Moses, that's the book of Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. So, so beginning with the beginning of the Old Testament, Moses, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He's not saying, look, my name, Jesus, is behind every single word. He's not saying, turn the passage around and twist it to insert me in. He's saying, look, the whole Old Testament points to me. Passages point to me. Verses point to me. But the point is, from beginning to end, it all points forward to the coming Savior, to the coming Messiah. He only had about seven miles to go with these men, maybe two hours if they took their time a bit. It takes over 50 hours just to read the Old Testament. He's not going through every verse. He's just summarizing. He's saying the whole Old Testament points to me and it actually says specific things about me. It says that the Messiah had to come. He had to die and be raised again. I mean, what a sermon that must have been for two hours, right? We think an hour sermon's long. Two hours with the Lord. That would have felt like an instant. That would have felt like a second. Give us more. That of course, he disappears from them and they don't get more teaching and then they realize who it was. It was Jesus. But he says, Moses and the prophets. Now, Moses is a prophet himself. In Deuteronomy 24.10, it says, Since that time, after Moses died, there was no prophet that had arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So when Paul says, through his prophets, he's saying, this gospel has been proclaimed from Moses 
to the end of the Old Testament Bible. It's always been there. Not everyone saw it. Even the prophets themselves did not see it. If you go forward to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, this is a key phrase. And again, showing that the gospel was there all along. Now we have more details today. We have uh, a clearer picture. We know the name, the, the human name, Jesus, of the Messiah. But the prophets were writing about him and they didn't understand everything they were writing. They're moved by God to write these things. In 1 Peter 1.10, he mentions this. He says here, as to salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made, a caref- made careful searches and inquiries. They were studying their Bibles. Even the prophets were studying what had been written before them. And they were searching carefully and they were inquiring of the scriptures. And they were seeking to know what person or time. See, they were looking for a person. Not just good news to sort of show up, but an actual person. And it says the timing. See, that's what they didn't know. What's his name going to be? When's he going to be born? Where even? And of course, eventually they figure that out. It's going to be Bethlehem. And they were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them. See, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working in them. And they were writing these things out and they didn't understand the time or the person. But they knew there was someone coming. There was good news coming. And Peter goes on to say, uh, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Spirit's working through these prophets and they're writing Scripture And they don't know the person or the timing, but they understand that he is going to suffer. And there's going to be glory. There's going to be a resurrection afterwards. And look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. See, they weren't serving themselves. They weren't going out getting rich by prophesying. Most of them died as they proclaimed God's truth. A lot of them were persecuted. A lot of them were hated, even by their own people, for the truth. And it says they weren't serving themselves. They weren't making themselves famous. But you, talking about new covenant believers in these things, they were serving us. They were writing them down for our benefit, the people who would come later, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So the gospel's in the Old Testament. It's recorded by the prophets. They didn't understand all the specifics, but it was written so later generations could look at it. And they could see the same truths there. And today, Peter says, in the New Covenant age, and even today, it's being proclaimed through the Spirit's power, things into which angels long to look. Even the angels didn't know all the timing. Even the angels didn't know the details. And Paul says, this is the gospel. It comes through the prophets. It was promised beforehand. And now the New Testament writers can point back to the Old Testament and say, this is nothing new. We're not making things up. Paul's going to quote a lot in Romans from the Old Testament. He's going to make his arguments from the Bible. We've got to make our arguments from the Bible too. Anytime we're looking on what to believe and how to live, we need to make our case from Scripture. It needs to be there. It needs to be there or implied from multiple texts in Scripture. So they were looking forward the prophets were and now the new testament writers like matthew when he's talking about the birth of christ he says in matthew 1 all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the lord through the prophets and then he quotes a prophet so they're through his prophets god sent the message he promised it long beforehand it's not a new message it's not invented by paul it's not invented by man and through his prophets in the holy scriptures This right here, this verse, is why the front of your Bible probably says, or the spine of your Bible says, Holy Bible. Bible means book. But this is the holy book. This is the set-apart book. Where does it say that in the Bible? Right here in this verse. God's scriptures are holy. They're set apart. They're separate from all the other writings out there in the world. If you're a Christian, you, you take that on faith. But as you read it, you understand more and more why these are holy scriptures. Holy, set apart. The 66 books of the Bible, they're set apart from other writings. You might benefit from reading other things. Hopefully you do. Occasionally read other books, even good Christian books. But there's nothing like the Holy Scriptures. They have the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of God. 
This book has the character of holiness. God has made sure of that as the ultimate author. There's no other book like it. In fact, when the Puritans were training up their children, they wrote a, the Puritans and the Reformers would write a confession, and then they would turn that confession around. A confession is just a doctrinal statement, and they would turn it around and make it into a Q&A. So you could ask your children and even new believers in the church. And they understood this doctrine. They sought the scriptures and wrote this down. And they said, when asked the question, what is the word of God? How do we know that the Bible is the word of God? And the child was supposed to answer the Bible, evidence itself, itself to be God's word by the heavenliness of its doctrine. So one of the reasons you know it's scripture is because the doctrine is not what we would make up. If we were going to write the Bible, we would write it much more favorably to us. When we get to the end of Romans 1, we wouldn't write that if we were making it up. Because it's all about how sinful we are. And Romans 2, it's all about how sinful man is and how we reject God. No, this has to be written by God. There's a heavenliness. You know it came from heaven, they said. They also said the unity of its parts. How could you take all these authors of Scripture and fit it together so well if this was a man-made book? There's no possible way it would work. But because it's written by God, it fits together perfectly. All 66 books of the Bible. They also said in the answer, and it's power to convert sinners and to edify saints. How do you know it's God's word? Because there's a heavenliness to the doctrine. It's unified as a book. And it converts sinners and edifies saints. That's how we know. Now, ultimately, the Spirit also is testifying in our hearts that it is the word of God. But these things we can see and look at in the book itself. And to think they only had the Old Testament. Paul's talking about the Old Testament. Jesus, in that passage we looked at, is talking about the Old Testament. They didn't have all the New Testament books that we have. I mean, what a blessing to just have the Old Testament if that's all that had been written. And the Old Testament is sufficient if that's all you have at the time. Let's go to 2 Timothy and we'll see how... Timothy was saved reading the Old Testament. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15. Is the Old Testament enough? Could somebody have read the Old Testament at the time Paul writes and have seen the gospel? Could they have been saved? Well, 2 Timothy 3.15 says that, that from childhood, Paul's writing here to Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Sacred holy. You see how he describes the Bible. From childhood, you've known these sacred writings, the Old Testament, and they're able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament alone, yeah, there's a lot of Old Testament saints that were saved, believing in the promises of God, believing in the coming Messiah. So it's sufficient to save the Old Testament. Is What about sanctify? What about once you're saved? Is it enough? Do we still, would we need the New Testament if we were born in 30 AD and all we had was the Old Testament when we got saved? Well, look at verse 16. All Scripture. What's, what's the Scripture they have? Yeah, there's, there's a few New Testament letters now circulating by the time of 2 Timothy, but not many. He's mostly talking about the Old Testament here. It includes the New when it's going to be written, but all Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. It's, it's sufficient to sanctify as well. Now, we have the New Testament. We want to read that. But how many Christians don't even read their Old Testament? They don't study the Old Testament. Churches don't preach the Old Testament. We're sometimes very ignorant of what happened in the Old. We need the Old Testament. It's there, Paul says, because these things were promised beforehand. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I delivered to you the gospel, the most important things, the first things which I received, he says. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins, what? According to the scriptures. That Christ died for sinners is according to the Old Testament scriptures. Yeah, that's what he's saying. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's all there. It's all there. It's just not as clear as the new. That's why in church history, they've often said the old is by the new explained. The new is in the old contained. 
It's there. It fits together well. Now, some preachers today tell you we have to unhitch from the Old Testament. They would go against what Paul said here. They would say we need to unhook from the Old Testament. It's offensive. It has a lot of things about homosexuality. It has a lot of things about God's wrath. God's telling the people of Israel to wipe out certain cities. And so what modern day preachers have said is we need to unhitch. You know, unhitch the wagon and quit dragging the baggage behind you in the Old Testament. Well, this is just the old heresy of Marcionism. Marcion was in the early church and he said, I don't like the Old Testament. I don't like all this Jewish stuff. I'm going to cut it out. I'm going to cut all the mention of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so he only had a little section of Paul's letters. And that was Marcion's Bible. And he had a little following. And the church came along and said, that's heresy. You can't do that. The New Testament points back to the old. You can't cut it out. It's God's word. There's no unhitching. When people say that, don't listen to them. There's no unhitching. There's no doing away with those commandments, doing away with that teaching. Just like Paul, we need to focus on the whole Bible. We need to know our Bibles well. And we can even look at passages in the Old Testament that tell us of the coming Christ, the coming Messiah, because it was promised beforehand. The gospel is not new. It has been there all along. It's just explained. It's, it's manifested. It's revealed more in the new. Now, secondly, and this is a big one, Paul's going to tell us the second fact here is the person at the heart of the gospel. The person at the heart of the gospel. The gospel's good news. It's in the Old Testament. It's promised beforehand through his prophets. But there's a person there. There's a person at the heart. He starts off in verse 3 concerning his son. What is the gospel about? What does it concern? Well, it concerns his son. God's son. It concerns God's son primarily. He is the center, the heart of the gospel. Yes, there's good news about forgiveness of sins. Yes, and Paul's going to tell us about that. There's good news about the benefits we receive when we believe in Christ and turn away from our sin. But at the center, at the core, there's Jesus Christ, God's son. The gospel of God the Father is about a person. It's about the work and person of God the Son. We must know Him to be saved. We must know Him and we must realize what He's done for us. We can't just talk about grace. We can't just talk about Christian terms and Christian ease, as I said, without including Christ and making Him the center, the core. We've got to turn away from ourselves and look to the Son. He's the glorious Son. The Puritans used to say, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Do you really want to look at yourself all the time? Pat yourself on the back or beat yourself up over sin all day? How about we just look to Christ? Isn't that what he's calling us to do here in Romans? It's concerning his son. And he'll explain that and open that up all throughout the book of Romans. But he's going to give us the bullet points right away. He's going to say, look, the gospel, I'll just tell you, he says, it's about God's son. Now, let me give you two facets of the person of Christ. He's going to get into all that Christ has done for us. But he says, when I start this letter, I just want to make clear right here, there's two things about Christ, the person you need to know. First of all, and the rest of verse three is his humanity, his humanity. He's from the line of David. He's from the line of David. He is a real person, a real human being. And Paul says concerning his son, and now he's going to tell us who was born. Now, right there, the Jews of the first century would have had an issue with that. How can the son of God be born? It's not possible. How does that work? Paul's going to get into it. He's, He's going to point back to David. He's going to point back to the Old Testament. But just stop for a second and think about what it means that he was born. It means that the Son of God took on flesh. He's talking about the humanity of Christ here. The humanity of uh, the Son of God taking on flesh. A virgin conception. That's critical to the Christian faith. You can't, you can't be a Christian and deny that Christ was uh, conceived of a virgin, born of a virgin. That he, he came out into the world. He came through a womb out into the world. And there was, there was blood and there was, you know, all that stuff that comes out at birth. 
That was our Lord. That's, he was real humanity. He grew up. He was a child. He ate things. He did all things except sin that a child would do at that time. He was born, and it says, of the seed of David. Now, a lot of early heresies, and even today, they deny the humanity of Christ. We can't do that. He's not only born, but he's from a certain genealogy. And to even be the Messiah, he had to be born from the line of King David. He had to be a descendant of David. I think that's what the NASB says. By the way, I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible as I go through this. It's literally the seed of David. That's the term they use in the Old Testament. So we need to try to keep that in the New Testament. So to say he's from David's seed, it's just biblical language. He's descended from the genealogy of David. That's why sometimes these, these heretics today who say that they're the Messiah, and everybody runs off into the jungle to follow them or into the woods. First of all, we know it's not true. The Messiah has already come. But just right here at this verse, the seed of David. No one could even know if they're a descendant of David today. All the records have been destroyed in 70 AD. They wouldn't even know their Jewish genealogy. Most of them, by the way, aren't even Jews who claim that. So David, who is he? He's the greatest king of the nation of Israel. He, he was a man after God's own heart. He was chosen by God to reign over God's kingdom. And God came and made a covenant with David. God came and made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are complete, he says. This is God speaking to the king. He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers. In other words, when you die, I will raise up your descendant after you. That's going to be Solomon. Solomon will be raised up. He'll be a great king who will come forth from you. This is his actual son, Solomon. And I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, Solomon died. Solomon died. Who is this king that's going to be forever? Just skip down in 2 Samuel 7 to verse 16. He again says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's a covenant. That's a promise that God made with David. And so later writers are going to pick this up in Scripture. Psalm 89.3, I have made a covenant with my chosen, God says. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. There it is in the Old Testament. There's a, there's a coming person from the line of David that will be God's servant, that will be the king reigning forever. And the fact that he had to be born of the line of David is so vital. It's so key that New Testament writers will mention it over 40 times. That Christ is of the line of David. He is from David's genealogy, from David's seed. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So you see where he goes back to? He goes back to... The greatest king that God made a covenant with, David. And then Abraham, who God also made a covenant with. Two most important people, really, uh, to the Jews. Also Luke. Luke chapter 3 gives us a genealogy. Do you know the difference between Matthew 1 and Luke 3? I know the ladies do from the Bible study I taught last week because I went over it. Matthew chapter 1, that's Joseph's genealogy. So Christ had the legal right through David's line. But Luke 3 is Mary's genealogy. Mary's genealogy. And it says in there that Jesus is the son of David. If you read through the genealogy in Luke 3.31. Right through the line of David. Not through Solomon like Joseph, but through another son of David, Nathan. So he's the son of David twice over, isn't he? He's from the line of David twice over. No one can really claim that that's not the case. The genealogy would have been written down. It would have been traced. It would have been known. And so he is from the line of David. And Paul just adds here, according to the flesh. According to the flesh. Indicates Jesus' earthly life. The flesh uh, has different uses in Paul. Sometimes you read the flesh and you think that's, that's sin. And it is. Uh, often Paul talks about the flesh. And he's talking about sin. Even our sin nature as Christians. 
Sometimes he just says flesh as the body. And sometimes flesh means humanity. Whole humanity. And that's what he's talking about here with Christ. That, that Christ was born and he's from the line of David and it's according to the flesh. It's according to the whole humanity. He had a body and he had a spirit. Because that's what humanity is about. Or you could say soul, spirit, soul. Same thing in the Bible. Sometimes people think, well, Christ had a human body, but his soul was zapped out, and then the Holy Spirit was put in for his soul. Or his divinity takes the place of his soul. Well, what you would have there is half a human, just a body, being animated by some kind of divine spirit. No, Christ is a whole person. And that was added to his divinity, but it doesn't change the fact that he's a whole person. Jesus did not have just a half a human body. He's full human. This means that when you go to him, and it says in Hebrews, that he knows our weaknesses. That he can be our high priest. There's so many benefits to Christ's humanity that are for us. But I'm not going to go there now because Paul's just focused on the fact that this is Christ and this is what he is, who he is. Now again, that, that Westminster Catechism that I quoted earlier on the Bible, here's what it says about Jesus. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Now here's the answer. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking himself a true body and a reasonable soul. Humanity is a true body and a reasonable soul. Being conceived, he says, by the power of the Holy Ghost here in, in the Confession, the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her, yet without sin. Christ was like our humanity in every way, except he had no sin. He had no sin. Now he knows, obviously, what sin is, and the fact that he is divine, he is God, but he never experienced sin directly. He did not commit any sin. How could we have a Savior if he had sinned? He couldn't be our Savior. But he is born of the line of David according to the flesh. Go with me to Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 4. And Paul talks about this to the Galatians. The Galatians are having major issues in their church. There's some false doctrine that's crept in. Some of the Christians there are entertaining this false doctrine. They're thinking about maybe the fact that they can be saved by the works of the law and not through faith alone. And so Paul's trying to cover the basics of the gospel here and in Galatians 4.4, 4, it says, But when the fullness of time came, when the fullness of time, that's at the right time in God's timing, God sent forth His Son. Here again, God's Son is born of a woman. Born under the law. He's born of a woman. He took on flesh. He's born under the law so that He might redeem those who were under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons. There's no other way to receive salvation except through Christ. You can't work it off, Paul says. You can't earn it. You can't obey the law perfectly. You have faith alone in Christ alone. And he obeyed the law perfectly. But we cannot. John, the apostle, says in his gospel account, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the logos, took on flesh. The Son of God took on flesh. We saw his glory, John says. Glory as the only begotten full of grace and truth. Why does this matter to us? Well, first of all, we can't even have a Savior unless He takes on flesh and dies on the cross. God can't die. Humanity can die. So the Savior takes on flesh. He, he pays for our sins. This is why Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.16, and, and he says, this is a common confession throughout the church, Timothy. The great is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit. So he came in the flesh. He vindicated himself by the Holy Spirit's power. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on it in the world, taken up in glory. Just a short little doctrinal statement. So important to the early church to be reminded over and over that Christ was truly human. He wasn't part human. He didn't lose his humanity. It wasn't just an illusion. You know, the Muslims say it just appeared that he died on the cross. It fooled everybody. It wasn't real. That's what's in the Quran. But the Bible says, no, he truly died. He was truly human. He died to pay for our sins. So this is just Paul's short description of the humanity of Christ. 
then, secondly, he goes into the Messiah's divinity. Divinity. And not just there. He doesn't just give us a real quick Christology lesson. A real quick lesson on the two natures of Christ. He actually shows that it's proven to the whole world. This divinity is proven to the whole world at Christ's resurrection. So he doesn't just say, yeah, he's also divine. But he says, the divinity was made known to the whole world at the resurrection. Go with me to Hebrews 1. And if you're talking to a, um, a Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, they often do come knocking on our doors. You know, we don't have to go find them. Sometimes they find us. And you can, you can talk to them about Christ's divinity. It's the thing they deny. But you can take them to passages like this. And they have their own translation, but often, occasionally, they won't mess with the words too much. And, and you can say, here's Christ's divinity. And you can tell them to believe in the true Christ, the, the Christ that Paul's preaching to us in Romans. Hebrews 1, 3, and he is the radiance of his glory. So, so Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Is he God or not? Well, it says right there, he's the exact same nature as the Father. And not only that, he upholds all things by the power of his word. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he always has been God, he is God, and he's even sitting right now next to the Father in heaven. His divinity shown throughout the New Testament. And so Paul says, in this letter that I'm writing to the Romans, I'm going to explain who Christ is, and particularly, Paul's going to get into Romans, what Christ has done for us, and then how we ought to live accordingly. But he says Christ is fully human, and Christ is truly divine. He says, who was designated as the Son of God in power. Now, you might look at your translations and say, it doesn't say designated. You know, look at Romans 1, verse 4. What does it say? Well, some say declared. A lot of translations say the word declared. And the word there is often translated declared to kind of help us because people might misunderstand, appointed or designated. Declared has the idea that, that God just declared him at the resurrection publicly to be the Son of God. The problem is, if we say he's been designated, which I think is the accurate translation, uh, people might take it and say, look, that verse is saying Jesus got adopted later by the Father. It's called adoptionism. If you go to Barnes & Noble, you go to the Christian section. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of Christian books in the Christian section. You do sometimes find Bibles. But if you go there, you'll often see this guy named Bart Ehrman. And he's a guy that turned away from the faith, but now he's using all of his scholarly efforts to try to disprove Christianity. And one of his more recent books is named How Christ Became God. And he's basically picking up this heresy of adoptionism, this idea that at some point in this man, Jesus' life, God adopted him as a son either at his baptism, some say, or at his resurrection. We know that's not the case. We know that all throughout Scripture, it's clear that Christ is divine, that he is the Son of God, that he is uh, the Trinitarian God revealed in Scripture. He is one person of the three, the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. And so these people say, well, look, there's the verse right here. Well, it does literally in Greek say appointed. That's what the verb means to make a determination about an entity. Determine, appoint, fix, set a person, designate. But what is he saying here? What is he saying about that? The LSB says designated. That doesn't have a problem with it. But look, designate the Son of God in what? Power. See, the focus here is not just on his divinity, but when was it declared, when was he designated that publicly? In power at the resurrection. The Son of God took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life on the earth. People didn't know if they just walked by him. How would you know? How would you know? But Paul knew when he met him on the road to Damascus, didn't he? Paul knew that he was, he, he was Lord. Lord, who are you? Tell me your name. It blinded Paul. See, his resurrection was clear after that. His glory was revealed. But while he was on the earth, you could walk right by him on the street. He looked like any average man. Unless 
you heard something about Jesus Christ, you wouldn't know just based on appearance. After the resurrection, anyone who was to see him, you can read in Revelation 1, then they know this is the all-powerful Lord. So his divinity has been revealed, you might say, as God the Father designated him the Son in power at the resurrection. But it says here, according to the Spirit of holiness. The Holy Spirit. Again, we have the Trinity right here in the passage. Where's the Trinity in the Bible? It's right here in this first paragraph in Romans. You've got the Father. That's just God here. You've got the Son, Jesus Christ. And you have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness. What a Trinitarian passage. This is the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Go to Romans 8, verse 11. Romans 8, 11. Who raised Christ from the dead? Well, you, it would be right to say the Father. It would be right to say Christ himself, because that's what he said. He would raise himself. But also Paul says in, in Romans eight eleven. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. The spirit raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says. If he dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So that's how we know, Paul says, that we'll be resurrected. If, if we have the Spirit, if we believe in Christ, we do have the Spirit. So the Spirit of holiness, it was according to His power that Christ was raised from the dead. And God the Father designated, appointed publicly, this is my Son. And then He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. That's Psalm 2-7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I begotten you. Now, the Father God cannot beget like a human birth the Son of God. But he can raise him up in that sense. He can raise him up to the level of the Son of God's divinity and humanity. Two natures, one person, Jesus Christ, who's now reigning from the right hand of the Father, He will come back to reign upon the earth someday as well. So this, this has been declared to the world? Does all the world know this? No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying everybody got zapped with that information on the day of Christ's resurrection. But he says, look, the resurrection shows that this is the Son of God. Paul picks that up in his sermon to the Athenians. He's in Athens. He's preaching. And he says, you need to repent. And he gives them the reason because he, God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. So he's talking about the humanity of Christ through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men. What's the proof to all men that this man, Jesus Christ, will judge all humanity? By raising him from the dead. That's how we know. Now we know because we have the scriptures as well, but the whole world knows when they hear about the resurrection from the dead that he's completely, the Bible says, completely perfect. His body will never suffer. His body will, will never undergo decay. He is fully resurrected. Yeah, Lazarus was resurrected in the New Testament, but he died again. Those people who came out of the tombs as Jesus was dying on the cross, they died again. They're awaiting their full resurrected body. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And so Paul says, this makes it clear to all men that he is the Son of God. In fact, that was God's plan to designate him, to appoint him to the world in power at that time. Now his power is on full display. And now Paul just finishes up here. He says, look, I'm going to tell you once again who I'm talking about at the very end of verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's just going back to his son, where he started verse 3, concerning his son. The gospel is concerning God's son. And now he tells us the full name and title, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now notice, he's giving the full name here, and he says, Jesus, that's his personal name. That means uh, Yahweh saves. It comes from Joshua in Hebrew. Jesus, Yeshua. That's his personal name that reflects upon his humanity. Then Lord, the Lord speaks of his lordship over his church. He is our Lord, Paul says. 
He's our Lord. And then Paul says, Christ, our Lord, Christ. Who's that? That's the Messiah. That's the Son of God. That's the one who was promised to bring salvation. Isn't Paul's theology rich here? Isn't it great to just see him summarize in a couple of points? A couple of points what the gospel is all about. It's about Jesus Christ. Now you might say, well, where am I, Pastor? Where am I in this passage? So what? What about me? Well, I'll answer you first of all, and I've already mentioned it somewhat. What do we do with this? What's our application? Well, that's not really our first question when we read about Christ. We ought not to immediately jump to us. First, we ought to just look at what the Bible teaches about him. And that should draw our hearts to worship him all the more, to thank him all the more. The Son of God takes on flesh and dies for us and is mocked and is beaten for us. Yeah, we'll get to the us in the gospel, but the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Not every passage in the Bible is always about us. It's not always a step-by-step process of what we need to do when we leave the church. Sometimes it's just to worship, just to believe the truth about what the Bible says. It's primarily about Christ, and we need to start there. Yeah, there are great benefits, and, and we'll see all of that, but what about Jesus Christ? Let's look to the only one who can satisfy our every need. Our every need, our need of salvation, our need of sanctification, our everyday struggles. Let's just stop focusing on us so much and focus on him. Let's start putting the most important things where they ought to be. Paul says of first importance, Jesus Christ. We need to meditate on that. We need to think of his glory and person and work. We need to focus on him. The more we think about him, the less we think about ourselves. That's where our focus needs to be. That's what we need to see as Paul just gives us a couple of facts on the person, Jesus Christ. So let's focus on him now and the rest of our worship this morning. Let's do that throughout our lives this week. You might ask yourself this week, what does it mean that the Son of God took on flesh and was raised again in power? What a good question to meditate on the rest of the week. Let's pray that God would help us do that now. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for truth and scripture. We don't don't always read it enough and understand it like we should and study. But I do thank you that you have revealed this truth to us, that you have shown us indeed the person of Christ, just in a couple of verses here, that these things have been written in scripture from long ago and they continue throughout the New Testament. And now we can open that Bible that's it's a closed canon and we can look at those 66 books and we can study the person of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would look at him all the more, that we would consider Christ, that we would think of him when times are hard, when we're struggling, when we're sinning, that we would look to Christ for all things, all the help we need because he's truly human and he's truly divine. So we thank you, Lord, for that reminder today. Remind us throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.